Earlier today, my colleague Wesley and I drove the 45 minutes from Cape Town along the terrifying N2 motorway to Somerset West, our goal to meet one of the Cape's great characters. Her mother was one of the most beautiful women of the 20th century. She married billionaires, her mother that is. At their house in Grosvenor Square in London during the Blitz, she took her children, of which my guest is one, to the roof of the house to count the bombs. This woman also, legend has it, stopped traffic on Madison Avenue in New York and also gambling at the casino in Monte Carlo for the first time in its history. She was part of the white mischief set in Kenya, a remarkable character who raised a remarkable daughter. The Honourable Pat Cavendish O'Neill has lived for four decades in Somerset West on a farm that is to the left of the N2 and in its day stretched all the way to the sea. And if you know that part of the world, you'll know how big that property was. Today she lives surrounded by dozens of cats, dogs, baboons, monkeys, goats, cows and humans who adore her. Her house is very beautiful and while she is 85 years old her disarmingly blue eyes tell you of the great beauty she as well as her mother once was. Here's a conversation with the Honourable Pat Cavendish O'Neill and I make no apologies about the animal noises and the slightly poor sound quality. If you've ever read the book A Line in the Bedroom and also seen a film called White Mischief, you'll know a little bit about what happened in Kenya decades and decades ago. One of those people that was uh, causing mischief in that beautiful country was the Honourable Pat Cavendish O'Neill. She now lives in Somerset West and we're at her home along with how many dogs, Pat? 30. 30 dogs? Yeah. Cats? 18. 18 cats? Well, there's a whole lot more now that have arrived. Yes. And so what? I don't know how many because they're all these <laughs> wild cats arrived. Plus a chimpanzee and a baboon. And four baboons and lots of vervet monkeys. And everything here is rescued, every single thing. And there are goats and there's pigs and there's a cattle. <laughs> I dread to think what your food bill is every month. Well, let's, but let's go back to Kenya first of yeah. all, because was it accurate for me to say that you were part of the white mischief crowd? No, no, because the white mischief was my mother's generation. Oh. I was off to that. I was, I was uh, about six years old. I met quite a few of them because my mother used to go to Kenya for six months every year. And I, the first time I went to Kenya, I was 11 years old. And I fell in love with it. I mean, at that age, it was so wonderful. And uh, after the war, um, I was determined to go back. Your mother, of course, was one of the great was one of the great beauties of the 20th century. I think she was legendary. I think her hair went white when she was 28 years old, and she used to have it swept up. And I think the legend was that she walked into the Monte Carlo casino, and for the first time, because of the dazzling brilliance of her beauty and all the tiaras and diamonds and everything else, that uh, gambling actually stopped. Now I don't know how true that is, but it's a lovely story. Was she very beautiful? And King Farouk, who was at the table, said, "Enid, do." Next time you come, you better come in a burka, or maybe that even that won't stop them. <laughs> you know, it was one of those funny things. Yes. But she was, she was so famous that when uh, she went to hairdressers and things, everybody used to come out from under the dryers. And, and you know, in those days, of course, it was, I'm going back a long time because I'm 85 now. <clears throat> so it's a long time ago, but she was absolutely famous. I mean, was it, was, it, was it like that? I mean, again, not harping too much on your mother's beauty, but I can see in your eyes that she must have been uh, very beautiful because you've got startlingly uh, blue eyes yourself. Did, did people sort of stop and stare at her? 
Well, they used to, absolutely, yes. Uh, they used to bring traffic to a standstill in New York in the days of the carriages. Yes. You know, and that stuff. Uh, it was famous. Mm. And, uh, and also, apart from being great beauty, she was the most wonderful mother in the world. And I never left mother. Husband had to go and live with mother. Pat, your mother was called Lady Kilmore, but I think it was uh, Somerset Moore, yes, who, because she, she kept on marrying billionaires and they kept on dying. Yes. Is that true? Yes, well, not totally, no, because her first husband was one, American. He fell in love with her when she was 16, and my grandmother wouldn't let her marry him, because she was 37 or something at the time, wouldn't let her marry him until she was 18. Quite right. So then he, he had a shipping line, so he, so then they got married, and she's, it was when she's married to him, because they owned the... 185 Madison Avenue, which was called the Cameron Building in New York, mm. and it was when she was crossing the street, and she was holding up traffic, that uh, at the time the richest man in America fell magic, and when he went out to see what was stopping his <laughs> horse-drawn carriage, <laughs> and, they, and his driver said, oh, it's the famous Mrs. Cameron, and then he, was, he pursued her endlessly, but he, she would never marry him, so that was one of those things, but he, he was he became my uh, godfather, yes. and uh, absolutely was passionate about him. Loved her all his life, yes. and uh, and then after that she married my father, who is General Cavendish. Yes. Uh, now Cavendish Square is named after his brother. Cavendish Square in Cape Town. Yes, hmm. his brother, uh, Lord Waterpark, as he became, uh, was a famous explorer. He went across America with Buffalo Bill. Hmm. And he came right through Africa, and because uh, the Cavendishes are all descendants of the Devonshire family, it's just one of the Devonshire names. The Devonshire name is Cavendish, hmm. and uh, my great great whatever grandfather was a Devonshire, you know, one of the descendants called Waterpot. And uh, so Cavendish Square is named after my uncle, and uh, and so. Uh, my mother, when she married my father, he wasn't particularly rich. She was the one that had all the money, not him. Because she was also Lindemann was, you know, a very rich family. Yeah. And uh, she, what happened is um, he was, uh, um, he was, he and my mother together brought us all up, never to be afraid, never to be jealous, and never to be ill. And if you are, don't. Don't talk about it. And have you managed that? Well, this is why I can live with Lan and every other country. Because wild animals pick up your emotions, you see, very quickly, no matter what, whether it's unhappiness or fear or anything. And so, as, uh, during the war, we had a house in, off Grosvenor Square in London. And when the sirens went off, just, you know, uh, for the bombing of London, my mother used to rush us up to the balcony and used to give us pocket money to who could count the most bombs coming out of there. So we used to love it. <laughs> so rather than going to the tube stations, you actually went up to watch the, the bombers fly over you and try and kill you? Well, we watched the bombs coming out, then we could count the bombs, and whoever counted the most bombs got the most pocket money. So we were never... I mean, this is absolutely true. So we were never... I used to love it when the sirens went off. <laughs> But of, course, a lot of money. <laughs> but of course, never mind bombs in London, your great love is Africa and, uh, and Kenya. When did you first go there? When I was 10 years old. Uh, my mother was on safari there. She used to go. Her third husband was uh, 
Lord Furness, who yes. owned the Furness. He was one of the richest men in the world at that time. And he saw her at the Casino Monte Carlo and was determined to marry her, so pursued her relentlessly again mm. until she married him. So he was a very strange man because he would not go on any public transport. He had his own train with his own, own station. He had two private aircraft and two ocean-going liners with a crew of 45. And he used to take my mother away to Kenya for six months a year so that no would-be lovers or husbands could come near us. So he would sail in his yacht to, to Mombasa or whatever it was well, and then have no, a... No, he would go by plane, his plane. Oh, I see. And then his plane would be sent back for whatever he wanted, you know, just to go backwards and forwards between Europe. Hmm. And his pilot at the time was called Campbell Black who was probably the most famous part in the world. And, uh, you know, quite interesting. One of... Furness always had to have the best of everything. The first airliner was... Uh, a, was he had the first plane that became the first big airliner in England. And it's the one that they borrowed when... Uh, what's his name? Went to Berlin to say everything was fine. The English, yeah, peace in our time, anyway. Yeah, yes. yeah, peace in our time. It was my stepfather's plane that came out. They borrowed this plane. Oh, okay. There's only one grand enough for him to take it back. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, you know, it was a, a very strange upbringing because I never went on public transport. And uh, it was... Uh, so, and I never went to school. So I was educated at home. I had a governess and a nanny and a tutor and everything else. Did you excel at work or were you always out riding and, and Well, I was, we used to ride eight hours a day because I could ride before I could walk. I had cavalry training. Hmm. So uh, I rode my first steeplechase at the age of six my step, on, one of my stepfathers, on one of my father's hunters. Where did you come? I don't remember, but I remember thinking it was absolutely wonderful. It was like heaven soaring over all those jumps. <laughs> no, so I, I literally had cavalry training, and, and I was always with horses. So yeah. It was my great life and love of life. So you went there when you were 10, and then yeah, presumably lived there, uh, well, visited there every year, and then eventually lived there. So, and then, well, on one of our visits there, um, I was given this lioness, baby lioness, uh, that had mother been shot. And I couldn't go back to the south of France. We were living in the south of France. And I couldn't go back to south of France with my lion. So uh, Mummy bought me this wonderful farm in Kenya. On so the game was have a, a, a Karen. I hope you don't mind me saying this, Pat, but one of your lovers gave you a lion, and then because you do, wouldn't go back to the south of France where you lived, your mother bought your farm in, yeah. in Kenya. Yeah. Yes, that is an extraordinary life. Hmm. That sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. No, it doesn't happen anymore. And uh, you see, uh, my, my mother living with mother, I mean, I got everything I wanted anyhow, you know. So it's one of those extraordinary things. But at the same time as being spoilt, which you would be considered to I be, you still had those, those, th those three principles that your mother instilled yeah. in you, and that I probably made you a little bit more balanced than I the normal very, spoilt child. I was very strictly brought up. Hmm. I was probably thrashed every single day of my life. Because my governess, uh, I was very headstrong, I suppose. She used to take a horse whip and whip me around the legs even if I left a cupboard door open. And looking back on it, I was delighted she did, because I was, you know, I was very headstrong, and I would have been horribly spoiled. Mm. And uh, the only time I was sent to school, it was a convent in Leicester, and I'll never forget it. After three weeks, uh, they thought I was some sort of strange creature anyhow. 
started to arrive in a Rolls Royce. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the school was run by a whole lot of nuns and things, and the smell in the classrooms was unbelievable. <laughs> and finally, after three weeks, I couldn't bear it anymore, so I locked them all in the classroom and walked the home. The nuns? Yes, and the pupils. <laughs> So I walked home, <laughs> and after that I wasn't sent back to, <laughs> to school. But you can see I was very headstrong, so you can see that I had to be, you know. And when I was 15, when my governess left, she apologized to me, actually. She said, but I never liked you. Um, and uh, she said, you know, uh, but I did uh, you know, punish you too much. And I said, no, as a matter of fact, you didn't. So I agreed with her that it wasn't. So okay, now now now, Ken, you you, you bought the farm, or rather, your mother bought you the farm. Were you were you um, uh, engaged or married at the time? This was just for no, you. I was divorced. Oh. at the time. So thank goodness. gave you the lion or not? No, no, no. So, no, I was divorced at the time because thank goodness, um, I was married because I couldn't have lived that life if I had been. I, I'd been married three times, oh. twice to the same husband and once to another one. Yeah. And, um, but as I say, husband always had to go and live with mother because I wasn't going to go and live. Yeah. <laughs> and one of, the, one of my husband was this Australian Olympic swimmer. He was the fastest man in the world at that time and had all these gold medals and used to be followed along by groupies and everything yeah. and always being unfaithful. So um, that thing of never being jealous, you know, it didn't work like a charm because he used to tell me all about his girlfriends and I uh, couldn't even remember the names of some of them. <laughs> and you eventually got rid of him, of course. Well, when I fell in love with somebody else, which I met in America, I had to get a divorce from him. He didn't want to divorce me, but then mum, I had to establish an American citizenship in Florida and mummy bought a house in Florida and then I married my second husband. In, in New York, but I always refused to get married in a church because I never really wanted to get married. I never wanted to feel tied down. Mm. And then that lasted about three years. And uh, funny enough, they both wanted to remarry me again about the same time when I was here. And, uh, you know, and they're both lovely people. And my, my, my husband just left the other day. He comes for a two or three months visit. Mm. Last year he brought his girlfriend, who was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, some of them have been very nice. <laughs> one, in fact, was Mrs. Mann, whose husband, whose son, was the one that led the rebel, you know, uprising. Yes. Who was imprisoned for a while, and uh, his mother was uh, madly in love with my husband, and she walked me round the garden once, saying, "Please, will you? I want to marry your husband. I'm so in love with him." And I said, "Well, it's up to him, you know." And uh, when I said to him, Frank, uh, I can't remember what her Christian name was, Mrs. Mann is desperate to marry you. Oh, he said, no, 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 no. <laughs> you said this to your husband? Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, it's a very liberal um, uh, approach. <laughs> Let's get on to the animals now, yeah. because here we are surrounded. You probably heard a few um, uh, dogs in the background. But tell us about the lion. Tana was the, one of the most wonderful things in my life. I mean, I absolutely worshipped her. And she... Uh, she slept on my bed, this huge lioness. I mean, when she was a cub, her eyes weren't even open when I got her. And uh, so I brought her up, uh, you know, when she made a poo, I used to rub her nose in it, smack her and put her outside, you know. So she's brought up strictly. 
And when she was about four or five months old, there was a film being made with, uh, and they'd bought a lion over from America for the film. And the man wanted to come see my lion cub. And he said to me, you must remember that lion are killers and can be very dangerous. Just remember that a female lioness with her cubs will give them one blow as a, as a warning not to behave themselves, but never two, because two hits is an incentive to fight. So you give one. And it was terribly funny when Tana was full grown <clears throat> and had done something wrong. I couldn't, she used to come into the sitting room or wherever I was with her face all screwed up like this. And because I used to hit her then between the eyes, because I said, if they're so, I mean, it's like concrete. A lion is like concrete, and to hit her anywhere else, it hurt your hand. So I used to ball up my fist and go bang like that, you see. And then so she used to come in, and her one thing was killing all my pet chickens, you know, and I love chickens. And her one thing was killing my pet chickens, and then if she'd done that, and the chimp used to come with his hand over his backside. <laughs> so I'd know he'd done something wrong as well. But, they, you know, they got so much love. Like I, I got so much love for my mother as a young person that although I was very disciplined, I got all the love. And this is terribly important with wild animals or any animal is to give them love and discipline. Very, very important. She saved your life? Yes. The first time she saved my life was when I was about... Uh, it was a most strange thing. I had this wonderful farm my mother bought me, Karen which was on a game reserve and went down to a natural forest at the back. And everybody said I was crazy. I was 31 at the time, living on my own on this farm with the mama. We were busy trying to kill people. And I said, mama doesn't worry me, wouldn't have worried me anyhow. And uh, so anyhow, finally I was convinced to build a security fence between my bedroom and the telephone if I ever needed anybody. So I got people to build me a security fence. And uh, I was one afternoon, it was a very hot afternoon, I was bathing my chimp in the bathroom, and I can feel my beloved Tana's feelings of rage. And she was on the roof, <clears throat> and she was about to spring on the man building my security fence, so I stopped her. She was very obedient, so I just shouted at her, Tana, and I stopped her. And forgot, I just said, look, I'll pay you off. Forget about my skill defense, because she's never done this before. So, ten days later, she gets off my bed, and she starts walking up and down by my window that overlooks this natural forest, three miles below the river. <clears throat> and I look at her, and she's trying to tell me something terrible is about to happen. So, uh, <clears throat> I thought, she's trying to tell me the mama are coming. So, on my way to the telephone, I thought, well, I can't say. I think the mama are coming. You better come when I call up the police station. How do you know? My lawn is telling me. So I said, I think the mama have arrived at my farm. It's a very big farm. <clears throat> so they said, we have no transport. You must come and get us. So I get into my big international, and I drive down to the police station, which takes over half an hour, and I get all these scaries, and I drive back again. So over an hour later, <clears throat> they go off on the farm, and... From, it's all darkness and nothing. You know. And then suddenly there's a roar of battle. And the mama had just arrived. And then the leader of the gang was the man who'd been making my security fence. And he tried to throttle me with his handcuffs. 
Yes, I was driving away because then I had to drive them. So Tana knew all that, all that time ago that um, that he had feelings of hostility yeah, towards well, you. Obviously, he was feeling feelings of hatred. She picked hmm. up from the roof as he was building this fence, and that's why she tried to spring on him. <clears throat> and and that was <clears throat> then another time she saved my life. We I used to love walking. I used to walk about 15 or 60 miles a day, and lion if they're well fed, they're very lazy, you know. And we were up in the Mara. At that time, the Mara was very empty, you know. I had a tented camp up there, and I loved the Mara. The river is absolutely beautiful. And we were, I was walking along in the evening, and Tana was dragging herself along behind, not another walk, you know. And I was watching the river, which was bright red, and the hippo were bright red, and in the sunset at the back was all these elephant outlined in black. And I normally I paid attention to where I was going, but now I wasn't paying attention at all. I was just admiring the beauty. And I arrived at a very marshy area, and uh, suddenly Tana threw herself on top of me, knocked me to the floor, sat on top of me, and all the marshy water was running down my neck, the smell of it, even to this day, I can still feel it. And what had happened, I was just about to walk into a herd of buffalo, which is the most dangerous of all the wild animals. And literally, and then, of course, Lion is her major enemy, and she sat on top of me, I looked at her, and her ears were pricked. And she was rigid. This huge wave was sitting on top of me, and I was gradually sinking into the <laughs> into the mud. <laughs> and of course, with the land, actually, and then I could hear all the legs being sucked out of things as the herd uh, disappeared. So she pinned you down so you couldn't move. Yeah. Yeah. She realised that I was being absolutely stupid, you see, and pinned me down so I couldn't move till all the buffalo departed. Extraordinary. Um, Pat, we're running out of time. You've also got a menagerie here, as we said in the introduction. You've been, your life has been saved by uh, Boone. Is, is this what your life is now? You've devoted yourself to looking after animals that need rescuing. Yeah. Yes, and now I've still got the old lady here that saved my life. Because mm. yeah. <clears throat> Baboon don't live all that long. I mean, she's about 32 now, 33. Because it's a long time ago, because they, they were never enclosed my baboons either, you see. My chimp was loose and my baboons were loose. At that time, I could do it because there's no other farms around. You must <coughs> have been sad when Fred the baboon from Simonstown was put down a couple of weeks ago. The newspapers told them about my beloved baboons here, what they've done. I mean, they literally, they said, well, I was being attacked by a man with an axe years ago because he was cropping a tree down by the river. Yeah. And I was walking with my two big baboons. And they used to love the river, and, you know, bathing and pulling up the stones and things. And I heard a tree being chopped down, and I rushed up, and I said, Mrs. Private Property, you can't do this. And he came literally at me, he had red dribble coming out of his mouth, and he screaming at me with his axe raised. And my, the baboons heard him in the river, they, they would have taken him apart, I'd save his life. Because otherwise they would have killed him. And he couldn't get to them with his axe, two huge baboons, you can imagine, on top of you. But, so, you know, animals will give their lives for you. Yes, of course. Animals can't save you when you're driving your car at 160 kilometres an hour around Somerset West, which is where we're speaking from now. You're an ex-rally driver, and you still apparently drive very fast. I'm afraid so. <laughs> I do try to keep the limits a bit, you know. Pat, I think we'll leave it there. I think that just about sums up for your life, actually. Keep it to the limit, but live life to the full. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, That's Pat Cavendish O'Neill.